Welcome to Screen Talk, IndieWire's weekly podcast. I'm Eric Cohn, the executive editor and chief critic, joined as always by Ann Thompson, our editor at large. And Ann, we have a whole bunch of movies opening this week to talk about, which is always my favorite kind of episode because we can actually talk about stuff people can go see and tell us if they agree with us. So a couple of weeks ago, you tried to get into Suspiria, but I hadn't gotten to it yet. So I've seen it now. And I almost feel like I'm just about ready to talk about it because, man, this is a movie you need to see more than once to really wrestle with. It's got a lot going on. I think I like it, but it's so thick. And and, and you think you like it? There's so much going on. I just, I have not settled my feelings. You don't have to like it, you know. (laughs) Well, here's the thing. There's nothing in the Quran that says that Luca Guadagnino's remake of Dario Argento's classic horror film is going to nest, which by the way, I, you know, it, (laughs) we're (laughs) talking, this doesn't have to be good. (laughs) But I think, so here's the thing is that it's got so much going on that really affected me. I do think that it's, it's this kind of beautifully abstract look at, you know, femininity and uh, it's a terrific mood piece. The, the score. I was humming the sets. There's no question. But there is something about it that also feels almost too deliberate in the way that it is con- consistently enigmatic in, in a very schematic sort of way. I mean, what, what was your take? Okay. Um, I would say that I was going along with it for quite a while. And of course, I love Tilda Swinton. And I think Dakota Johnson is very good in this. And then as it starts to twist into the dance sequences that are so horrifying, which I uh, found, you know, shocking and beautiful at the same time, uh, those sequences are quite brilliantly uh, executed. The story itself, the plot, such as it is, the way that that unfolds, along with the story that Tilda Swinton is telling of two characters she's playing in the movie. Now, that is a stunt. And is she capable of it? Of course she is. She can do anything. So basically, you've got two Tilda Swintons in the movie. And part of what happens is that you get distracted. Uh, If you know it already, you're going, "Mm, look at that makeup. Look at what she's doing. What what an incredible job she's doing. Or uh, if you don't know it, you're going, hmm, is that Tilda Swinton under there? And so... I think that really doesn't work. That I actually, I, I, I loved. And the reason why I loved it was because it was so transparent. They don't change her voice, but there she is as this old man who is trying to kind of, you know, spread the word or uncover the, the kind of occult-like demonic things that are happening at this dance school. And in some certain ways, you could interpret a lot of what happens in this movie to be a reflection of what this guy has been through. And, uh, you know, I don't want to spoil the end of the movie, but I, but on, on some level, the more that you reflect on that, the more it becomes about perhaps somebody going through uh, challenges involving their identity and how they relate to the world, because the movie is so much about the female body to have a prominent male character in the movie played by a woman in a very kind of obvious way, it kind of, it gives the movie to Tilda even more than I was prepared for, for her to kind of own this thing. I mean, it yes, felt- but let me ask you this. Do you believe that that subplot, just looking at it separate from whether she's playing that part or not, just pulling back from the movie, for me, 
that entire subplot was dull and flat and boring and I couldn't wait to get back to the rest of the movie and I and I think he gave her that much time and that much importance because it was her and if it had been some unknown European actor who was playing that part trust me it would have been a much smaller role if it had been a newcomer Lutz Lutz Ebersdorfer exactly the, the the guy they made up who's who's not a real actor who's playing this role. I think what's kind of interesting about what what you're saying is that yeah, you're absolutely right. If 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 that movie if that subplot in the movie kind of was given its complete space, then it would be a pretty boring movie. But it is it is a boring movie. That's the I point I'm making. I wasn't bored. I wasn't bored because there's just, there's so much going on. It's just. I, I I wanted it to kind of crystallize its intentions a bit more. It's, really- it was stuck with the material it was working with, A, and which isn't very substantial anyway. And B, uh, I mean, did Luca Guadagnino do the most with that slight, slight, uh, you know, thread of, of, of a movie that he, you know, he, he made a lot more of it. But honestly, the, the movie stops dead during those sequences. It's, it just dies. And 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 I think I think it it's 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 it can't be saved. I think the thing that that to me was was frustrating was that there are so many impressive sequences, and that the movie as a whole often stops itself in its tracks, right? By shifting direction a lot. There, yeah. There's just a lot. I think of you might problems. agree with me. <laughs> I, I think I like a lot of what Suspiria is doing. I just, I, the the challenge is that it's. It feels like the movie itself never totally came together. It's not really coherent. It isn't. And the guy made something that is so uh, uncompromising. And perhaps I have a soft spot for that kind of willingness to just go wild. And there is a lot of craft on the screen. No question. He's singing the sets, as I said. Right. Yeah, so... I, I loved the look of it. It has this very uh, Czech Republic kind kind of, you know, Dushan Makaveyev look to it. You know, it's very sort of 70s, mid-European. I like that. Yeah, and, and the thing is, Guadagnino, there are some people who were sort of reacting to this as sort of like, well, of course, after Call Me By Your Name, Guadagnino goes off and does one of these crazy, uncompromising auteur things. But he's kind of always been, or at least for a long time, been a filmmaker who has this kind of fetishized approach to the craft, you know, that you either are with the kind of high style that he swings for, or you're against it. Call me by your name. I think because it was so focused on this romance was not actually the, the best introduction to his filmmaking as a whole, the way that say I am love might be. I agree I, with that. I love, I am love. And yeah. it's a very different kind of movie, but, but, but it works curious. and it's yeah. coherent and it has a theme and it is incredibly erotic and all the things that go on with that film. It's, it's this, this it is utterly streamlined and coherent, even yeah, though when he goes off into his reveries about, about the sensual world. But what I'm saying is that I think that this feels more like the filmmaker who made I Am Love than anything related to Call Me By Your Name. Correct. Seen in that context to some degree more than the one that, that I think is overshadowing this given the, the profile that Call Me By Your Name had. And I think he's an interesting filmmaker who deals with surfaces a lot. And it's, it's sort of at the mercy of a good screenplay that can bring that sensibility to other kinds of audiences, which is what happened with Call Me By Your Name. 
And uh, I don't know. I, I'm curious to see how it does because there is a lot of enthusiasm for this movie as it comes out in the world. And I'm, I, I, I just talk about word of mouth. You know, what is word of mouth around Suspiria really going to be? Because it's not a horror movie in the most traditional sense. No, I think this is interesting because it's a little bit... Um, like what is the difference between film Twitter where all the cinephiles are going nuts for Suspiria and word of mouth in theaters when the older <laughs> art house audience gets a, a gander at this. Uh, but a movie that pops has an advantage. And so uh, Amazon could come out ahead on this one just because of its shock value. Well, Amazon certainly needs a movie to do well. So and, do. And I can't imagine anybody else uh, financing what I mean this is not a cheap movie when you look at not just who's in it but there's a lot of crazy stuff in this movie effects and makeup stuff and all kinds and I enjoyed of some of the European casting too I mean some of those women are just fabulous some of those scenes when all of those crazy women are yelling at each other are really fun it's just that I I guess I'm asking <laughs> I'm asking for the movie to make sense yeah. I don't go to movies because I want them to make sense. I want them to be satisfying in some kind of way, even if it's a way that I'm not prepared for. And I did find that glimmers of that throughout Suspiria to the point where I do want to see it again and, and talk not, to I highly doubt. I go for it, Eric, but I, I mean, your, your time is your own, but yeah. I, <laughs> I highly doubt uh, that that you're gonna you're gonna find a, a coherent th through line there. Well, one of the things I've been hearing people say is that there's lots of Easter egg type stuff in there. I think the internet's gonna have a field game with this movie, pulling apart the various things that seem to be going on, and there's something to that. Although I have to say, if you're gonna see a really wacky movie this weekend, you might want to prioritize Border which we've talked about before and it's finally opening in New York and LA. Now, now that weird. is a weird yeah. movie that we talked about this before that belongs very much belongs in the uh, tradition, the honored tradition of, of the Yorgos Lanthimos um, movie that takes you to outrageous places, but it does so intelligently and with extraordinary finesse, especially in the makeup department and in the question of gender identity. It's so much fun to go down the road with the, these characters and you're wondering and who are they and what's wrong with them and then this strange sex scene occurs and you find out <laughs> you know, don't spoil it because I'm not that's, saying. Of, I'm not that's saying. the fun of it i mean the the thing about this movie that i appreciate is that it, it kind of plays it straight it's not like it's not like a, a b movie kind of a thing and it doesn't overstate the fantasy component that enters into it either it kind of it arrives at a point in time in the movie where you're kind of you have just enough information where you're kind of ready for it but then, and then you have the aha okay that's yeah. what's going on and there's a mythology to it it's a right world. you know they figured out the rules and all that kind of stuff i mean this could be a franchise not that it probably it will be but i think ali abasi this iranian-born guy who's based in sweden who made this movie he is very well positioned like your Lanthimos was when Dogtooth made the rounds. And it, when I was in Toronto, there was a Q and A, and the the two actors who were in the movie, who uh, by the way are very good looking actors, like many actors are, and you just you it was fascinating to listen to them talk about what the makeup did to them and how yeah. it, you know changed their performances. 
So this is the Swedish Oscar submission, so it's going to be playing around. I'm it's playing well excited. with the Academy so far, and it's opening this weekend. So I definitely recommend it. Yeah, and it's not the only Oscar submission opening this weekend because we've also got Burning, which is Park, uh, I'm sorry, not Park Chan-wook, uh, Lee Chang-dong, another prominent Korean filmmaker's his first film in eight years uh, since after Poetry. And I, it's I don't so know good. It's, so good. It's, it's very good. It's, think of it's, French New Wave. Think of Jules and Jim, like a romantic triangle and driving around and they're out in the country and what the hell is going on? And you wrote about one of the surprise stars of the movie, Stephen yeah. Yoon. Well, Stephen Yoon is an interesting guy because he's got all these followers from playing Glenn on Walking Dead, which, you know, that character left the show two years ago. But he has yet to kind of, I think, permeate the mainstream with a movie role that is has the same kind of following that he did on the show. And and here's where you really get to see what he can do as an actor, because this this movie, based on this Murakami short story, has this kind of Americanized, westernized character enter the scenario, and and he's so much more confident than the very kind of introverted guy who's also pining for the affections of this woman. And he represents a kind of ideal that I think is, is at the center of the movie in a way. And so he's so well positioned for that. And he's speaking Korean. He's never done a Korean language role before, but is he's doing it in a way that I think also opens up the movie to some degree because... Well, of, he's clearly westernized, yeah. so that makes sense. And he's so mysterious and alluring, and is he a good guy or a bad guy? And um, he carries it really well. It's the first time I've sort of thought, this is a guy who could be a major movie star. And he should be. I mean, he's up for... He, he has that kind of profile now where he could be positioned for that sort of thing. I, I wonder how this movie, what it sets him up for, really, because it's not an English-speaking role, even though he is an English-language actor. He was in Okja, but he was speaking English in that movie, and he, he's done smaller things. So it's, it, it is kind of an open question with somebody like this, how he navigates the industry and what he chooses to go for. When I spoke to him, one of the points he made was that he, uh, you know, was afforded the luxury of not rushing into things because being on a hit TV show means you have a financial cushion and he's young enough. He's in his early thirties where now he can continue to be a little picky, but you know, when you're not on a show all the time, you don't have the same kind of profile. So hopefully he gets something soon that allows him to kind of continue to build on the potential you see in burning and burning overall, I think is a movie that should open up Lee Chang Dong to more people because some of it's long and it, and it is very cryptic, but it's I think slow it's and it's accessible though, it and it's very very beautiful and very very sad, and there's this extraordinary woman at the center of it who reminds me of Jean Moreau. I know that seems strange, but and the two men are besotted with her, and there's this one shot. This one incredible shot where the men are watching her and she's dancing and the sun is setting and 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 it just uh, is is one of the most beautiful uh, long takes I've ever seen. Yeah, there's a lot of great filmmaking uh, kind of uh, intensity to it. You know, the way the music flows through certain moments, the way that it kind of seems to exist in like one person's headspace a lot of times. And there's a lot of, you know, telling. POV stuff, yeah. Yeah, or like sort of these 
these quieter scenes that are sort of the moments in between moments where you're not totally sure where we're heading or, or you know, what this person is thinking and then they take action. It's sort of surprising. So I don't know. I, I just, I hope it, it gets out there more. It's Li Cheng Dong because, you know, he works so sparingly, I think is very underappreciated in the West and could, could benefit from the exposure of this movie. I'll also put this out there. It's a great cat movie. It's a really good cat movie. <laughs> because it takes a while for the cat to show up, but it's worth it if you're a cat person. So, uh, so how is that screen for the Academy? What have you heard? I don't know that it has screened yet. Uh, okay. They're just getting started. There's a whole long schedule. Um, and they have changed the rules this year. So uh, anyone in uh, the Academy can go see any foreign film their heart desires at any number of theaters. And they can go to the big ones. They can go to the little ones. They can do whatever they want. And uh, as long as they see a certain number, they'll be able to vote. Um, and they've just changed the rules around to make it a lot. And, and a lot of them are going to be, you know, and be able to vote um, in the second round as well. So it's it's really uh, the old Mark Johnson controlled, uh, you know, uh, Sony Pictures Classics limited kind of uh, foreign film voting is no more. Yeah. And, and all of this is, I mean, that's all good. I, I'm still very curious about this category because, it seems like Roma would be the safe bet still for the best foreign language. One would have to yeah. assume. But I mean, with such a complex... By the way, that played. And that played through the roof. And it has and the talk of the town. Yeah, that's sort of... It seems like such a no-brainer, but I am curious about it because, of course, this is a movie that's being pushed into, you know, the bigger conversation with the but bigger cast. it a must-see in that regard. Um, and, and the other thing I keep hearing from people, and this is no surprise, is how uh, much... Uh, better the movie, no, no, this is a different way of putting it, how much the movie benefits from multiple viewings in different venues with different kinds of screens and different sound and, and all of that. And I can't wait to see it again and again and again because I believe them. I guess uh, the thing I'm curious about is in a year with su such a compelling range of foreign language options, you know, will Roma just cannibalize everything or is there a possibility that because they're doing such a big push for best picture that that could maybe push it out of the foreign language voting block and more. It, it doesn't work like that. Language. It doesn't work like that. It, this is going to be, I mean, if you, if you put a gun to my head and said, Ann Thompson was going to win best picture today, I would tell you that it's between A Star is Born and Roma. Yeah, we've been saying that for a while. And I would say that the favorite is is coming in, you know, behind that. And that obviously First Man is falling, falling down a bit uh, because it didn't do well at the box office and it has a mixed um, and a wide range of reactions. But uh, at the same time, um, Roma is pretty much of a lock for best director. So... That I could even go to the bank with right now, um, and and but we haven't seen a few films. You know, we haven't seen Vice, and we haven't seen um, Mary Queen of Scots, and and uh, the the Mule, the Clint Eastwood. So we're waiting for the rest to come questions. in. Couple open questions there. We have basically seen the documentary category though, and there have been some updates on that front. 
You went to an LA event for the Cinema Eye Awards. How did that go? So this was the first oh. annual uh, Cinema Eye Awards, and it's a fascinating group. It's a, a guy named AJ Schnock, who is a documentary filmmaker based in LA, who uh, over the years has organized this awards uh, uh, show, um, which will come up eventually in New York, but he uh, often holds gatherings in LA. But this was the first time he did this whole um, inaugural, announced the uh, Cinema Eye Honor nominations, and he collected uh, all the LA filmmakers, and a lot of them were on his uh, his lists uh, of, uh, you know, where there's an audience prize, and then there's, uh, uh, you know, so Free Solo was on a lot of these lists uh, that, you know, came up this week. The IDA had their, uh, the um, Documentary Association um, had their uh, nominations as well. So there's four movies basically that are showing up over and over again at these different uh, groups and um, and look like they're pretty much the front runners in the documentary Oscar race. And that would be Free Solo, Minding the Gap, um, Won't You Be My Neighbor, and um, uh, I'm glad to say uh, Crime and Punishment. So uh, I, I don't need to see Crime and Punishment. So that's that's a good one, a good excuse to go check that one out. I know it's on Hulu, so it's pretty widely released at this point. The, uh, the my my favorite from the ones I have seen is still Free Solo, but I think it's pretty great that Minding the Gap is so far into the conversation, considering that it's an incredibly young filmmaker and a very personal piece of filmmaking. You don't always see that kind of thing pierce the awards conversation. So that's a really so interesting- RBG and, and Three Identical Strangers, which are the two hits from the summer, are still making uh, an appearance as well. They're on the uh, Audience Choice nominees list. Along, you know, the other movie I keep hearing great things about, which I haven't seen yet, is Matangi Maya MIA. Have you seen that one? Yes, I have. It's it's very solid. Um, you know, it, what's, what's good about it is MIA herself and, and how compelling she is as as sort of as the centerpiece to the movie. I wouldn't say the filmmaking is on the same level as the access they got because this director has a relationship with MIA going back to their college days. Although supposedly she didn't like the movie at first, it seems like she's come around to it. But it's one that, you know, people should see because she's an important cultural figure and I didn't know everything about her backstory when I saw it. Considering everything else we're talking about, I wouldn't put that one, you know, at the top of the list. Uh, but I am curious about the other ones you mentioned with Three Identical Strangers, which has been commercially successful and has a very compelling hook to a lot of people being part of that conversation and RGB being another summer hit. So it, it is a bit competitive. I mean, not all that stuff is going to make the cut. No. So, well, yeah. there'll be a 15 list, a short list for, for the Oscars. I'm curious. I mean, I love Quincy. I'm, I, I have a lot of respect for what they did there, even though it seems like it has an aspect because Rashida Jones, his daughter, is, is part of the, the film. She was willing for it to go into some pretty um, unattractive places and to really dig into his backstory as well as the music. And Alan Hicks did a great job of organizing the whole thing into something coherent with a great deal of discipline given all the material they had to work with. 
Um, so I thought that came out very well. And there's a movie in the Unforgettable Documentary Subjects category uh, at the uh, Cinema Eye Honors called Lots of Kids, A Monkey in a Castle. You love that thing. I love this movie. <laughs> And, I, and I'm, I'm surprised it's still around. I mean, it finally got distributed, actually. It, 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 was, it, it won at Carl Vivari. It's a, it's a Spanish film. It's, it's subtitled. But it's, it's this um, um, wonderful portrait of, of a family uh, that has to downsize in the recession from a castle to something smaller scale. And it sort of takes the hoarding or looking at all your family's things that they've collected, that whole aspect of what a lot of people have to deal with uh, into another realm. It's fun. So the other news this week with respect to uh, that matters to people who love watching movies is, is a bit of a more uh, on the sadder side of things, which is Filmstruck, which announced on Friday morning that it was discontinuing at the end of November. And this is a really important service, full disclosure. We've worked with them in the past. We really like the people there, but also I think really valuable in the sense that it was a, an attempt to create a, a really robust streaming library and a streaming platform for people who like watching classic films. And, and I, I think it's too bad. I, I hope that there is a plan in place with Warner Brothers and uh, TCM to do well, with its classic film archive that could be similar. Well, I think what you got there is a situation where in the wake of Disney and they're putting a, an OTT up um, uh, to compete with Netflix, Warner's is gonna do that too. And Warner's has its own Warner archive. And this partnership, um, and you can correct me if you have other information, but my sense has been that, um, that, that, that the fit between Turner Classic Movies and Criterion was never that great, and that the whole thing was always very um, much in flux in terms of trying to figure out the best way to uh, reach uh, people online. And I don't think they ever quite got the marketing and the branding. I mean, we work for a website and you and I both know how important it is to get traffic and to understand, you know, how to, to get attention and what headlines grab people's eyeballs, you know, th that kind of instinctive understanding never seemed to exist on that site. Do you agree with that? Yeah, I think that it, it's sort of like, so a lot of times with, when, when, treasured uh, objects in the in or entities in in the film world go under like say a, a film publication or something like that and people bemoan you know it's the death of this or that or the other thing really you have to think about you know what did this thing do to survive in a very competitive market and the challenge with something like filmstruck you know I, my armchair analysis is how do you take something like that and you layer something on top of it that's going to bring other people in who wouldn't automatically be interested in what it had to offer. And I'm not sure they ever got to that point, which doesn't mean that there weren't plans in place because of all these different things that are happening on the broader corporate side of things with OTT plays, but it is yeah, something to consider. That's right. So Warner's is going to, is, is what, I mean, it is Warner's, I think that, that is, is, is getting out of this business. They still have Turner classic movies. They still have Warner archive. They still have a deep vertical that they can play with incredible titles that they can play with now. Maybe this was <laughs> something they learned from, right? Criterion I want to see where they go because they're a company we care deeply about. And the library is extraordinary. Yeah. 
And I think so, what Criterion did that film hadn't quite accomplished and, and a lot of people struggle to do is that the brand represents something very powerful. Mm-hmm. I mean, I know people who don't necessarily identify as cinephiles, but they know Criterion and, and which they want to watch good movies. They turn to the Criterion collection. It's, it, it could be in the dictionary at this point. I mean, Weren't they over at Hulu with their own vertical it, over there? I thought that was working better in a Hulu weird way. had the library. I mean, to me, if I was Criterion, I'd be thinking about where, what is the best place to surface this material? That's this right. Is, I mean, we don't know. The problem know. with Netflix, though, is that they are, they won't give you an identity. Like, it, you know, you'll just be scattered to the winds along with everything else. Yeah, exactly. So we'll see what, what happens. In any case, uh, next week we'll have plenty of other things to talk about, other movies coming out. We've got uh, the IndieWire Honors event on Thursday, and we're thrilled with all the talent that's going to show up there. So, Maybe we can talk a little bit about how all that went since we'll have some really cool award season folks to mingle with then. And um, we'll find some other movies to check out. Maybe I'll see Crime and Punishment. You'll find some stuff to see and and more to come. So have a good weekend. You too, Eric. See you in town.